We are in Acts chapter 6, and Phil's going to read verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church is God's plan. The church is God's means for assaulting the gates of hell. The church is God's design for doing irreparable damage to the kingdom of darkness through the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is God's plan, and God's plan is perfect. We ignore God's plan to our own peril. I have an acute but irrational fear of knives and swords and axes. Kids, are you listening? Would you like to know why? Okay. One Sunday afternoon when I was in third or fourth grade, I was playing outside with my brothers, and we were playing with uh, sticks, because that's what little boys do, and so we were playing with sticks, and I was up on a platform uh, that was to be a uh, treehouse. And while I was up there on this platform, I needed to cut a piece of twine. Now, <clears throat> with the right tool, a piece of twine is very easy to cut. I did not have a pocket knife or a scissors or even a utility knife, which would have been handy, but what I did have was a small, dull axe. Not a hatchet, a small, dull axe. Again, with the right tool, this piece of twine ought to have been easy to cut, but with the wrong tool... And with poor eye-hand coordination, the axe found the tip of my left index finger before it found the twine. And this is why I am afraid of blades. <clears throat> 
Now, imagine you came over to the Martinson house and we were going to have dinner. And I said, hey, the tacos are just about ready. I just need to cut this cilantro. And then instead of going to the knife block and selecting a knife, I make my way out to our garage and I come in with an axe. And I prep this axe in my hand and I prep the cilantro. Would you not say to me, what are you doing? That is not what an axe is designed for. An axe is designed for cutting trees. It's for cutting logs. It is not for dicing cilantro. What if I said to you, trust me, I know what I'm doing. This is going to work out okay. Now, apply this to the church. The church is God's plan. The church is God's design. And God's plan is perfect. He designed the structures and the patterns and the mission and the sacraments. We do well to joyfully submit to God's design. And we risk damaging our gospel witness and hurting one another when we say, oh, just trust me, don't worry, this is going to all work out just fine. Some of us have been abused and neglected and overlooked and deeply hurt by the church. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's true. Some of us have felt hurt, some of us have been hurt by people within the church, people who should have cherished and supported and looked out for you and protected you and discipled you. Grace City is not a perfect church. We have not been, and we are not going to be a perfect church. There are too many imperfect people in it. But by God's grace and the Spirit's power for the glory of Jesus, we choose to submit ourselves to God's design for the church. Why? Because God's design is perfect. During the fourth quarter member meeting in 2020, this church adopted the elders' proposal to shift our church governance to elder-led congregationalism. Now, if you're not familiar with this, I'll give you just a quick, very quick summary. You can still find the sermon on our website if you're interested. If you can't find the link, let me know and I'll send that to you. Elder-led congregationalism makes the church's members the final authority on matters of what and who of the gospel. What and who 
of the gospel. That means that in this church, we choose to vote on changes to what the church believes and who its leaders are. But we don't vote on what time to start the service or the design of the portable signs that are out in the lobby. We choose to vote on what the annual budget is and who the church's leaders are. But we don't vote on how much we should spend on background checks for those in kids' ministry or who gets to play guitar with the worship team. Under elder-led congregationalism, elders within the church are the church's servant leaders. It is the elders' primary responsibility to pray and to study the scripture, and to teach, and to shepherd, and to disciple the church that God is building. And serving alongside the elders are the deacons. And deacons are the church's lead servants. Now, our English word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. And when you find this word in Scripture, it's translated a handful of ways. So I want to give you a little survey so that when you see it, you'll have a hint of what's probably going on in this text, okay? So Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7. Sometimes the word diakonos is translated minister, as it is here. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. That's the word diakonos, a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This word is also translated servant as it is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. So, when the scripture uses the word diakonos in this way, then it is helping us to understand that every Christian is called into service. Every Christian is called into service within the church. And when you serve, you imitate Jesus. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There it is again. This is a form, both of these words for served and serve, a form of the word diakonos. So, since Jesus came to serve, those who serve most selflessly imitate Jesus most obviously. Those who serve most selflessly imitate Jesus most obviously. Our word diakonos is translated minister or servant. It is also translated deacon, as it is here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, 
servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So when the scripture uses the word diakonos this way, it helps us learn that some Christians don't just serve. They make up a group of individuals who are the church's lead servants, the deacons. Deacons are always ready to jump into ministry opportunities. Deacons are the quickest to volunteer. They are the first to give. Deacons are so eager to lead by serving that some young people may refer to them as extra because they are just always about serving others. But deacons are extra in a really, really good way. You've heard me talk before about the elders being those who get out just a little ways ahead of the church And the elders are those who say, we believe God is calling us this way. This way is the direction that we want to lead this church. Come and follow us as we choose to follow Jesus. Come follow us in this direction. Where are the deacons? Deacons are at the head of that flock. Deacons are there encouraging and exhorting and supporting the church and saying, those elders, those are biblically qualified elders. They're faithfully shepherding us. They're faithfully discipling us. Come on, church, let's follow those elders as they choose to follow Jesus Christ. Deacons are extra, but they're extra in a really good way. Among the diverse languages that were spoken in the early church, two were most prominent. There is Aramaic, this is a dialect of the Hebrew language, and there is Greek. And so the church here in Acts contains Jews who spoke Aramaic and followed the Jewish culture and submitted themselves to the Jewish laws and customs and read the Hebrew scripture. And the church contained Jews who spoke Greek and they followed Greco Roman culture. And they read a translation of the Hebrew scripture into the Greek known as the Septuagint. The Bible refers to this second group of people, these Jews who are Greek speakers and followers of Greek culture and readers of a Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture. The Bible calls them the Hellenists. It sounds a lot worse than it is. The Hellenists. And as Acts 6 begins, a division threatens the early church. Remember, the church comes about in Acts chapter 2. We're really early in the history of the church here. And already this church 
is being threatened by division. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Jews who spoke Greek, followed Greek culture, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, which would be the Jews who speak Aramaic and follow the Jewish culture. Why? Because the Hebrews, the Hellenists' uh, widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. This church is experiencing explosive growth. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, we know that there were 5,000 members of the church, and apparently this was a count of only the men. There may have been 20,000 people in the church by this time. Some within the church are receiving the care that they need. The scripture refers to it as the daily distribution. Some within the church are getting the care that they need, and some are not getting the care that they need. The widows who are Jewish and speak Jewish, speak the Aramaic, the the Hebrew dialect, they are getting cared for, and the Hellenist widows, those who are Jews who are speaking Greek and following the Greek culture, they are not having their needs met in the daily distribution. This is a little bit challenging to illustrate, so bear with me, okay? Imagine here at Grace City, if it became a thing where those who are homeschooling their children receive benevolence funds from the church when times get tough. And those who choose to send our kids to public school don't get the funds that we need, don't receive the care that we need. When we, find, when we fall on some kind of hard times and we need benevolence care from the church, our needs are overlooked or minimized. At best, some needs in the church are being overlooked. At worst, this is rank partiality and favoritism. The apostles know that this division must be addressed and quickly. But how? How are you going to deal with this problem? Well, think about how we deal with divisions. Think about the ways that you have been hurt by churchy people in the past. How do we solve problems like this? When we don't follow God's design. Well, you could throw out the complainers. You're no longer welcome here. Get out. You could let them stay, but shun them, 
right? Just make them feel really uncomfortable. Give them the cold shoulder. Don't give them announcements. Don't do the meal train thing for them. Don't welcome them when they're here among us in Sunday morning. You could outvote them at the next member meeting. When we get to Q4 and we're going to vote on the budget and, and, and they say, I think we need more funds in benevolence. Our needs are not being met. You could just outvote them. You could get to a situation where it was really bad, really toxic, where people within the church just said, we're out, we're leaving. We don't want to deal with this problem. My least favorite, I think, of all of them, you could just form a committee and talk about it some more. I'm glad that none of these reasons, none of these ways of dealing with this division is how the apostles respond. They recognize the urgency of prayer. They recognize the vital importance of studying the Scripture and preaching. And they know the practical needs of this group of people must be met. Caring for the practical needs is critically important. The question is, who should take primary responsibility for serving the church's practical needs? Verse 2. And the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte, sorry, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The church selects some qualified, godly servants. Now, an interesting little note, if you're paying attention there and you didn't just sort of breeze past those names, if we look at the names, just at the names of those who are selected, all of these individuals would have come from the Jews who spoke the Greek language and followed the Greek culture. These are all Greco-Roman names. Did you notice that? These are not Jewish Hebrew names like we're used to reading in the Old Testament if you're reading the Bible recap. Interesting. 
The church chose those from the marginalized group, and those who they chose satisfied the whole congregation. These are individuals who know how to serve. They commit themselves to serving in this very practical way. They can lead others in serving. And they are entrusted with some measure of authority. Don't miss this. It is not that serving tables or picking up trash or setting up chairs is somehow beneath the apostles, as though they are too good to be bothered with such things. That's not the point here at all. They wisely recognize that God has gifted the church both servant leaders and lead servants. And in order for the church to flourish, both the spiritual needs and the practical needs of the church must be met. Look what happens in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The early church submits itself to God's design through the leadership of the apostles. It remains unified. The word of God continues to increase among them and more and more people believe in Jesus. Even who? The priests. Who is this? The Jewish portion. Do you see that? They raise up and recognize Greco-Roman individuals to serve the practical needs of the church. And what does God in His great kindness do? He draws Hebrew Jews to faith. Ultra-religious people who you would never expect to respond to the gospel, they respond and are converted to faith in Jesus. An axe is designed for chopping wood and not cilantro. We would do well to submit ourselves to God's plan and to follow His design. Remember, the church is God's plan. What is God's design? By God's design, the church is led by servant leaders, the elders. And by God's design, the church is unified and encouraged and intentionally cared for by lead servants, those the Bible calls deacons. In the next six to 18 months, the elders plan to lead Grace City Church in identifying and assessing and installing our very first deacons. We think that this is important. 
I think it's particularly important as we remember that an axe is not made for chopping cilantro. We want to submit ourselves to God's design and to his plan. And we believe that deacons are part of God's perfect design for the stability and the flourishing of his church. Why is that? Why would deacons be part of God's perfect design for the stability and the flourishing of his church? The answer to that is because deacons reflect the heart of Jesus. As Ryan pointed out last week, the good news of the gospel begins with really bad news. We are sinners, desperately hopeless sinners, and we deserve punishment for our sin. But God, who is so rich in love and mercy, sent Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He serves. He submits his will in perfect obedience to the Father. He fulfills the law for us because we were never ever going to fulfill the law on our own. Jesus models selflessness sacrificial love. He cares intentionally for the weak and the stubborn and the arrogant and the broken down and the outcasts of society. Jesus lays down his life there at the cross and then takes his life back up again on that glorious Sunday morning. And 40 days later, Jesus ascends into heaven. And Christian, if you don't remember this, it's my joyful duty to remind you, Jesus right now is serving you by interceding for you on God's behalf. Deacons reflect the heart of Jesus. I wonder, are you a Christian? Have you responded to this message about the one who came not to be served, but to serve? Have you trusted in Jesus for the salvation of your soul? Have you laid down all of your effort to continue trying to earn a place with God? Have you arrived at that place where you recognize, I am so desperately in need of mercy. I will never get to God on my own. I wonder, would you respond today to the preaching of the gospel? Would you respond to this one who laid down his life for the sake of his people? See, the gospel describes the servanthood of Jesus, the only one who truly deserves to be served. And yet, he came to serve. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. 
For even the Son of Man, referring to himself in this most humble of titles, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, made serving his primary mission. Think about that. If the King of kings and the Lord of lords came to earth and made serving others his primary mission, can you think of a way that you could possibly be more like Jesus than when you choose to selflessly serve others? Since Jesus came to serve, those who serve most selflessly imitate Jesus most obviously. In order for it to flourish the way that God designed, Jesus' church needs people to serve like him. But this is not just a message for future deacons. This is a message for all of us. Follower of Jesus, child of God. My brothers and sisters, do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want to imitate him more obviously in your life? The most obvious way to be like Jesus is to selflessly serve others. I suspect you can think of dozens of ways that this could be true, even yet this afternoon in your own life. We can grow in serving our spouses. We can grow in serving our children. We can grow in serving our friends, those that we are in discipleship relationships with, people that we interact with in our missional community. We can grow in serving this church we can grow in serving the Big C Church by remembering to commit ourselves to serving our missionaries. We can grow in serving our neighbors, your students, your customers, your clients, your patients, those that you come in contact with every day at your work or in your home. We can grow in serving this community that we are privileged to live in. Since Jesus came to serve, those who serve most selflessly imitate Jesus most obviously. Can we pray about that together?
Father, when we think about Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, setting aside all the glory that was rightfully his so that he could come to this place. It stirs up something inside of us. Perhaps it starts with awe or admiration. Maybe there's even a little bit of confusion or, or contemplation as we think about the Son of God coming into this world and serving. Father, would you continue to make this truth very real to us, planted deep into our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit? Please make very plain to us the ways that we have not served selflessly. Give us the grace of repentance. Give us the grace of trying again. Father, would you raise up from among this group those who will sacrificially and selflessly serve. Those who would be extra for the sake of the church. Those who would encourage and meet practical needs and care in dozens of unseen ways. We know this would be for our good. We need your wisdom to help us to identify and to assess and to install deacons. We want to submit ourselves to your design. So would you help the elders to continue to teach and to set the vision for deacons faithfully? Would you help us to shepherd and to disciple your people? Would you raise among us dozens of servants? And would you help us to know those who are particularly gifted and equipped and called by you to serve this church? Help us to be the kind of church that is known for serving one another. Draw others to faith in Jesus as they see us laying down our lives for one another. What a wonderful privilege you give us to imitate Jesus in such an unmistakable, obvious way. Help us, we pray. Give us strength. Strengthen us where we are weak. Convince us where we are doubting. Help us for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.